Trump's computer center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome to Inside Politics, an overcast day here in Kamloops. Always nice to chat politics on Fridays with the members of the panel, but every once in a while events transpire and they're unable to do the show and this morning is such a time. Uh, all due to the National Energy Board holding a news conference as we speak to table its reconsideration report of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Everyone, of course, is dialed into that, as we are here as well. But that said, we do have an interesting show for you. We'll listen in on my sit-downs at the legislature with Finance Minister Carol James, B.C. Liberal Leader Andrew Wilkinson, and Green Party Leader Andrew Weaver. But first up, Education Minister Rob Fleming joins us. In the budget, $550 million for capital projects, uh, $58 million for a classroom improvement fund. Obviously, a good chunk of change to go out there and do something on the, on the school side. Your government has promised uh, uh, to go out there and build some new schools. Uh, and of course, since you're on the phone with me, the obvious question off the top is, uh, you teased something uh, early in the new year, potentially here in Kamloops. You're aware of this district's need. Uh, can you reveal uh, at all uh, if any of that $550 million is going to be flowing to Kamloops at, at all or no? With Kamloops, we're very pleased where we are uh, with regards to their number one priority, Valley View Secondary. Uh, we're so close to completing the business case and signing off on on, on that. Um, certainly, uh, as Minister of Education, I'm very interested in helping that school get to a much more normal sense of its capacity, and it needs an expansion. Uh, and, uh, and we're close. The budget will help us support projects like that all over British Columbia. We're still in the in the phase where we're addressing a huge backlog of projects that were never addressed by the by the previous government over 16 years. Those are everything from seismic upgrades to keep kids safe in the event of an earthquake to to helping fast growing districts uh, get kids out of portables. Um, so Kamloops has done an excellent job uh, since the Ministry of Education invited them to move forward on the business case development there, and we're very, very close. So you got this pot of money, the $550 million. What's the What's the process? I mean, do you have to spend it within the fiscal year? Uh, how do schools go? But How do you go about it, kind of determining which schools, projects have priority? Any ideas there? Well, I mean, our capital list has an extensive number of projects in every part of uh, the province that are either proceeding to construction, under construction, or completing construction, so you have a lot of different um, expenses, and, and and what we, our cap, the way our capital budget is spent is when when the actual money is 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 is, is allocated when projects are in place. So, um, you know, a large project uh, typically will be expensed over one, two, in some cases three fiscal years if it's a new high school being constructed, for example, and uh, and and so our three-year plan with 2.7 billion dollars. Uh, a record level of capital investment in BC should help us get to the position where we can address the neglect um, that the previous government left as a legacy on underfunding school construction. Um, you know, it was important in budget 2019 to get the funds necessary to help communities right across British Columbia upgrade their schools. We we have a new curriculum for the 21st century. We need 21st century learning spaces in communities. And it's pretty exciting when you look at some of the designs that are coming into play in, in, different, uh, in different districts. On the capital side, uh, I was talking to the BCTF, and they were they were kind of emphasizing how critical it was on the new school uh, school enhancement sort of side uh, to achieve class size and composition goals. Here in Kamloops, of course, we've got aging buildings. We have the class size and composition mandates. Really hard to create classroom space in the buildings that are that are super restricted. So, in your mind, is getting out there and building new schools critical to achieving that that class size and composition, or no? It depends what district you're talking about, and of course, there's a lot of buildings that are applying for renovation funds. We have record levels of school enhancement program funding. We have 
topped up and increased for the first time in a decade, the the facilities grant uh, that happens annually. So there's some districts that uh, have multiple projects underway, whether it's building a new school or fixing up some of their old schools, addressing the deferred maintenance that we were left with from the old government. Really, we have a number of uh, capital areas of spending that are helping uh, districts refresh their classrooms. If you have uh, overly large space that can be repurposed, uh, into specialty spaces. You're seeing that happen in a lot of districts, and, and, it's, and it's good stuff to see. Here in Kamloops, Valley View is obviously the big one, uh, and we're hoping for an announcement there, and we'll have to see. But uh, from your perspective, could Kamloops uh, move past that project and see other projects come to fruition in the near future, or no? Well, I think when the district achieves its number one priority, and it's been it's been a priority for a long, long time, and uh, you know the previous government did not give the green light on that. I'm very pleased that um, our government has because you can see demonstrably uh, why that project needs to be supported. Uh, and when we do uh, go ahead and, uh, and begin work on that project, then obviously the district in its subsequent five-year capital ask uh, to the ministry will have a new number one priority. And we're certainly uh, looking at opportunities uh, where we can make good investments uh, in districts like Camus. On the bargaining side, Rob, the two sides going back to the table, um, it looks like there might be some symmetry on the three-year term, possibly even on the mandated two, two, and two. Uh, but a couple of things there. Number one, the class size and composition is going to create what the union tells me is possibly even BCPC for that matter, the most complex set of negotiations what we've seen in probably a decade or two in this province. Uh, just thoughts on, on, on how that is going to impact uh, bargaining at the table in your mind? I'm very optimistic about bargaining in agreement with the BC Teachers Federation. I hear the union's leadership saying very similar things to the government and BCPC. We want to achieve uh, a contract before it expires June 30th. We're at the table having exchanged proposals already uh, earlier than uh, at any previous set of negotiations. Uh, but I think the table is set very nicely as well that you know the BC Teachers Federation has 4,000 additional members now. We have the smallest class sizes that we've ever had in BC. We have a lot of specialist teachers in the classrooms now. We have a government that has invested significant dollars each and every year in our, in our so far short term uh, that we've been in power uh, that I think uh, will help uh, negotiations. And we're not seeking um, concessions that the previous government always did at every round of negotiations. Uh, so really it's uh, going to be a discussion about what, how do we do things uh, better for teachers, uh, students, and parents. You know, I think uh, uh, we have a shared agenda there around uh, improving student outcomes and student success in the school system. And, uh, and that's what's going to be talked about at the bargaining table. The other one is with the two, two, and two, uh, if that is indeed where we're heading up on wages, is, is there a way to tackle that through the, the salary grid of teachers themselves by updating the grid as opposed to, you know, handing them a massive, massive wage increase at the table? Well, I'm going to let the bargaining happen at the bargaining table for sure. And I think uh, both parties will come to the table with uh, some creativity and they'll want to talk about uh, a number of issues. Our government, and certainly I as minister, uh, of education have taken recruitment and retention very seriously. We've put some new funds on the table. We've expanded university teacher education program training spaces. Some of those teachers will be available in the classroom uh, September 1st uh, of the next school year. Uh, so we've acted really quickly on a number of things. And then I think you, what you're seeing in budget 2019 too, that, uh, 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 student teachers coming out of university right now, they're going to enjoy uh, the elimination of interest rates on their student loans. And there's job opportunities like there's never been before. There's a high degree of mobility for teachers in BC. There's lots of great jobs opening up in districts around the province. So it's a very, very positive time to enter the teaching profession. And uh, that's why we're expanding the number of teachers that we train in British Columbia. We're also 
uh, recruiting internationally, and, uh, and and so far that's been very successful. We do still have a shortage of teachers. I, mean, I haven't checked the list lately, but I think it's around, uh, I don't know, 350, 400 last time I checked in with Mr. Hansman. But uh, uh, what's going on on that front to ensure when we go into the new school year this September that, that we're not dealing with, with uh, shortages any longer? I think what we're seeing around uh, teacher hiring is that many districts have no active postings at all. They've hired 100% of of uh, the teachers that they need for the current school year. Um, you're starting to see uh, in a number of districts the issue of substitute teachers being replenished, which is good. A lot of long-term substitute teachers got full-time jobs, and uh, we're very happy about that um, from the hiring that, that our government did. Um, but I think these things are are starting to iron themselves out. But w- what we did is we uh, dramatically increased the number of uh, teacher education program training spaces we looked at some of the shortages, particularly in specialist areas, math and science, uh, French immersion, um, some of the specialist uh, educators as well that work with special needs learners, and we said the, and we expanded those seats in particular. So um, the universities, every new seat they've offered that's been funded by the Ministry of Education is at a 100% take-up rate. And as I said, some of those uh, new teachers are going to be available uh, in just a few months' time in, in the new school year. And last question to you, Rob. The budget contained $58 million for a classroom enhancement fund over three years. Uh, what, what exactly is that and what kind of impact will it have out there? That's a fund to help uh, hire uh, to our needs, but it's, it's also it has to be seen in a part of a bigger package of $440 million of ongoing recurring money uh, related to the Supreme Court settlement. Um, it also has to be seen in the context of our government's record over 18 months in, in office. Uh, we, we, the Premier Horgan and his cabinet and uh, me as education minister uh, made uh, the school system a priority. It's been underfunded for far, far too long. And, and our, you know, you look at this budget and, and what it builds on, while enrollment's only increased about 3% since we formed government, funding for the education system has gone up 17.1%. So... We have infused the kinds of resources uh, into classrooms uh, to improve uh, learning conditions for kids and working conditions for teachers, and uh, and we're very proud of that. And I think uh, going back to uh, reasons for being optimistic about bargaining success, I think that uh, is a very, very different context and scenario from what we've seen with hostile uh, governments in the past, uh, the, the decade of conflict that was the B.C. Liberal legacy. That's gone. We now have a government that uh, believes in public education, is putting money in there in significant amounts, hiring and supporting teachers. Rob, always a pleasure. Thank you, man. Okay. Thanks a lot, Shane. That was BC's Education Minister Rob Fleming. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics. On the other side, Finance Minister Carol James. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Earlier this week, while I was at the legislature covering the provincial budget, I had a chance to have a sit-down in her office with Finance Minister Carol James. Let's have a listen. First and foremost, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff to dive into in here. From your perspective as Finance Minister, is there one thing in all of this stuff that was tabled today that, that you, is, you know, most important to you or no? Well, I think the, the most important piece really is that this budget continues to invest in people. Uh, I think we saw from the past government that they uh, didn't put investments in people, that it was 
simply looking at a strong economy and nothing else. And we've said that to build a strong economy, investments have, have to happen for people. And so it includes the child opportunity benefit, which I think is a huge support to families. Previously, they only got support up to age six. Now they're going to get support to age 18. So for the life of their child from birth to 18, which will make a huge difference. Student loans and getting rid of interest on student loans. Again, for students who come out with seeing the number continue to increase when they're trying to pay it off, that'll be a huge burden off their shoulders as well. Um, eliminating medical service premiums. Last province left in the country with medical service premiums. As of January 1st, those will be eliminated. So to me, those are a couple of the key pieces uh, that I think will really make a difference for people in our province. On the childcare benefits, uh, just out of curiosity, so on, I'll use myself as an example. I got a four-year-old, so when this thing kicks in, I just that just goes and not like people who have kids after that day it's just all of a sudden it, there it is that's right families will now be able to collect the dollars uh, as i said all the way up to age 18 right now it stops at age six the benefit is just over six hundred dollars right now we're increasing that benefit up to sixteen hundred dollars um, and so as i said that's going to have a huge impact on families lives with the child care benefit they're already receiving um you could see families getting benefits of forty thousand uh to support a family and think of what that means to people who are living paycheck to paycheck and struggling with their budget on housing affordability which is i think a tricky road to navigate without question there is people in metro vancouver specifically you know i'm sure here in southern vancouver island who are irate about the housing situation who are struggling with affordability on the other hand you don't want to overcompensate and crash the market uh, housing starts are down by about a third so as you as you navigate this how, how do you do that how are you conscientious of not overcorrecting one way or another well I, I as I said today uh, during the budget I, I'm cautiously optimistic about the signals we're seeing right now uh, which are showing some uh, moderation in the market you're starting to see single-family homes condos and townhomes all dropping in price which is what you want. You don't want just an, one individual kind of housing. You want a range of housing. You also saw a little bit of an uptick in vacancy rates uh, for the first time in, in Metro Vancouver. And that again is a, a positive signal, but it's early going yet. Um, so we're gonna be taking a look at all of the measures we monitor every month. Um, we take a look at everything from vacancy rates to housing affordability, to housing starts, um, to the value of housing starts. We've also got a, a large number of uh, housing units coming on uh, that we're units in our first year uh, in government that we approve that are still being built and are in the process of being built so that supply is going to come on board as well and then we've also got some great partnerships that are coming out of the housing hub uh, we're partnering for example with uh, faith groups who have land in cities uh, and who are offering up their land for housing affordable housing to be able to both support their congregation but also to be able to provide housing so I'm really pleased about the direction that uh, that we're going are we there yet no would people say that they can find affordable housings in Metro Vancouver or the island? No, we've got a ways to go yet. Um, but this kind of um, moderation uh, and correction, I think, is a positive direction. Speculation tax has definitely had some impact, but I'm also getting a sense that the mortgage stress test, which is not from your government, but uh, is having a, maybe possibly a bigger impact mm -hmm. on, on dampening things. Is that a concern for you? Are you looking at that and saying, okay, maybe I need to pick up the phone and say they need to temper this thing? Mm -hmm. Well, I've said all along that we 
have to remember that government doesn't control all the tools um, when it comes to housing. The federal government, obviously, and the mortgage stress test, but also interest rates. If interest rates start to climb, that's going to have an impact on the housing market as well. So when we talk about monitoring the market, we're monitoring those outside factors as well. And we have to take those into account when we take a look at what direction we're going to go on on housing. So uh, monitoring is a critical piece over this next year. In your mind, what does this budget do for people um, outside the Metro Vancouver and Kamloops is, of course, where I'm from, but for rural BC and smaller communities like your Mary, your Kamloops, your 100 Mile House, your, your Prince George, how does the budget help those people outside the bigger urban areas? Well, I think certainly all British Columbians, including rural BC, benefit, for example, from the issues of affordable housing. Um, we've built housing in a number of communities and rural communities as well, uh, partnership, partnering with First Nations communities uh, in rural areas. Child care makes a big difference. The child opportunity benefit it will make a huge difference but specifically for rural communities the 50 million dollars we're putting in connectivity uh, to be able to connect communities uh, when it comes to the internet again that's going to spur on business investment that doesn't happen if you don't have that internet there so that's a very large spend when it comes to support we just announced this past weekend 100 million dollars for the northwest um, to be able to help those small rural communities burns lake smithers along the route vanderhoof um, for those communities to be able to look at how they build infrastructure without a tax base um, and so again that infrastructure is going to help them to be able to uh, spur on uh, economic activity so I'm really pleased with the balance we've been able to find in this budget forestry we're putting money again into forestry uh, we made a couple of mining tax credits uh, permanent uh, instead of year by year they'll be permanent tax credits so that'll help the mining industry as well so uh, I think the strong economic growth we see obviously LNG is going to have a big impact across uh, all of our province including rural communities 111 million dollars for wildfire to combat the flames I assume some prevention work in there I know that leading up to the budget there was some talk about figuring out how to budget for wildfires mm -hmm. I don't know if that was in there or not or um, we did we changed the the amount each year from 60 million to 100 million 101 million um, which I, again will just recognize the challenges that have happened over the last few years but remember we always have the ability to be able to spend whatever we need for statutorily to be able to fight fires but the big piece as you point out that we felt was important to put money in for was reforestation, um, restoration, um, all the kind of work that people need to do to prevent the forest fires. And there's dollars in this budget for that that will, help, again, help those communities. And, of course, you have the contingencies should things run over. Um, on the marijuana front, I was kind of curious about this budget leading up because this is going to be the first one we're going to see some cannabis taxation. Now, there wasn't any separate line item there, but what are you seeing as far as uh, cannabis tax revenue so far? Um, so it's early going yet. Um, we've certainly had discussions with the Union of BC Municipalities because municipalities have expressed interest in revenue sharing. Some First Nations have expressed interest in revenue sharing. Right now, the costs are outweighing revenue coming in. Um, we have the cost to set up the uh, liquor distribution, but for cannabis, um, so there's a lot of infrastructure that's still going into place, licensing officers to make sure that the stores and the retail get open. Um, so I think we'll we'll see that over this next year. Hopefully we'll start to see the profit come in and then we can start having those conversations. But right now expenses, I'm afraid, uh, are, are surpassing any kind of revenue. Speaking of which, uh, there was some talk that perhaps we would see a formula between uh, the province and local governments announced in this budget, uh, which signals to me that at least on the Union of BC Municipality side, there's a sense that we're in the final phase of negotiations. So so an update there, are we going to see a formula soon? 
formula for revenue sharing yeah, on, between on the cannabis. Province and, yeah, and local governments. So the, what we've said to UBCM is we want to make sure that we have first a really good description of what municipalities will be responsible for and what the province will be responsible for. That'll give us a chance then to determine what that formula will look like. And then we want to see revenue so that we know how much revenue we have to share. But I'm feeling very optimistic. We've had great meetings uh, on the work that they've done. UBCM has done some very good work around a, a revenue sharing formula. So I'm confident we can get to an agreement. Do you anticipate that, you know, obviously there's upfront costs here that are going to weigh against, but do you anticipate, you know, a year or two down the road that the cannabis taxation could be a significant source of revenue you can tap into or not? I think it's early going yet, um, and so uh, I'm a pretty cautious finance minister. That's why I build in the, the contingencies. That's why I make sure I build in uh, the forecast allowance. Uh, so I would say I'm cautious at this point, um, but I think everyone would be pleased to see another source of revenue in British Columbia uh, to be able to share with communities. On the $3 billion on the First Nations front, um, I'm not sure exactly how that sounds like you're buffing up the gaming grants by 7% if I have that right. So They'll, yep. Yeah. 7% of the gaming grants will go to First Nations. Uh, so it'll be about $100 million a year um, for the first three years, which will take us into the $300 million. And again, this provides First Nations communities really with an anchor to be able to uh, look at further economic development, to look at things that are important in their community. They know those dollars will be coming in each year, just as they are with municipalities. We share revenue and gaming uh, resources with municipalities. We're sharing them with another level of government right now, the local First Nations uh, government. And this has been years in the making. Uh, they have been trying to convince the past government uh, to look at revenue sharing for years. And this is a very big step forward and will benefit everybody because, again, First Nations communities spend those resources in their local community, which supports the entire local community, not just the First Nations. And no change for local governments because I know the concern was that they were going to see less if the First Nations were factored in, but no change there? No change for for, for, for uh, local governments and no change for charities who also receive a uh, portion of those uh, resources. All right, last question. Um, I know you, you expressed your number one threat was sort of global uncertainty as we, you know, things are out of your control out there. They are mm -hmm. what they are. But um, with that in mind, how do you tamp down the provincial debt so that, you know, should that happen, we're not caught in a bad position? Because there's still, uh, there's been work done on that front, but it's still a pretty significant number sitting there. I think if you take a look at our debt to GDP uh, ratio, we again are leading the country uh, when it comes to our debt to GDP. It's very manageable compared to every other province. So we're in very good shape. Um, we're managing that well because we've continued to have surpluses and continued to see strong economic growth. We're managing that debt. So it's keeping an eye on that. It's making sure that uh, we're keeping track of that and uh, keeping around the 16% ratio, which is a ratio that's important. Uh, and that's what we're continuing to do, even with our major capital build, because the economy is growing and is so strong we've been able to make the 20 billion dollar investment that we made in capital sleep well tonight <laughs> I don't think I'll sleep well uh, I don't think sleeping well goes with the finance ministry job I've learned <laughs> I think there's always something to worry about <laughs> that was finance minister Carol James quick break to the bottom of the hour and inside politics on the other side we'll begin talking to the Andrews first up Andrew Wilkinson Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Had a chance earlier this week to sit down with BC Liberal Leader Andrew Wilkinson in his office at the legislature. Let's take a listen. One of the things that stuck out at me was a semi-miraculous turnaround for ICBC. Uh, they're off by about half a billion dollars in forecast and somehow they're going to convert that to $50 million in losses and suddenly a 
fountain of funding on the revenue side in just a couple of years. Uh, your take on that? Well, it sounds like they're playing games of the numbers. I mean, David Eby maintains that he can tell the courts what to do and he can tell the lawyers what to do, and both of them are pushing back. There was a Supreme Court judgment uh, January 23rd saying that they're not buying it in terms of what ICBC is telling them to do, and so David Eby is going to have to redo his numbers. But I don't suspect he'll be revising anything toward the truth because we've seen massive revisions of their numbers in recent years. Well, you're a lawyer. Does uh, does what he's doing on the legal side to, to kind of you know herd in those costs? Does that make sense to you or no? He said that he would be telling people how many export reports they're going to have, subject to what the courts say. The courts make up their minds on that. They don't get pushed around by David Eby. Similarly, on this approach they're having of these lowball settlement offers, the courts just spanked him on that in January, saying, no deal. You can't play ball that way. This is completely inappropriate. So what do you do? Well, we've said throughout that ICBC is a completely tired 45-year-old state-run monopoly. Nobody in the world does it the same way as we do here in BC. So why don't we look at the best deal available from anywhere in British Columbia and come up with a better model for consumers? Stop talking about billion-dollar deficits and start talking about that invoice I get in the mail asking me for thousands of dollars. Uh, on the housing front, uh, obviously there's an affordability crisis out there. People are irate. I don't care who you vote for. People in Metro Vancouver, Southern Vancouver Island, not happy. Uh, speculation tax, you're not a fan of that. We look at the budgets. Uh, property transfer taxes have nearly flatlined. They're projecting a, a housing, new housing starts to drop by a third. So how do you tackle the affordability and address the hue and cry without an implosion on the housing starts, construction side, etc.? This has been a classic NDP think. They say, well... If houses are expensive, let's drive down the price of houses. And then they forget that people stop building them if they can't make money building them. So you run into a supply shortage, and lo and behold, prices have not gone down because the NDP are basically constraining supply. That doesn't lead to any kind of affordability for anybody in British Columbia. And what's really going on, if you take the big picture, is the NDP are raising taxes by $6 billion. That's about $2,500 for a BC family over the next three years. And $1,000 this year, that's less money for people to invest in themselves. And the NDP say they're going to help you with affordability. It ain't happening. So how do you address affordability? Because there's, there's a distinct problem there that needs to be addressed. Totally. We need a greater supply of housing. I moved to Kamloops when I was a little kid. There were 1.6 million people in B.C. They're now 5 million. People come here at the rate of about 60,000 a year. So they need a place to live. Telling them that's too bad, you'll have to rent, that's just tough, isn't going to work. What that happens is it drives up prices. In the meantime, the NDP are taking more money out of your pocket in taxes, so fewer and fewer people can afford to live here. I was in a meeting yesterday, and the employer from a law firm in Richmond reported that two of their lawyers are moving to Saskatoon. They're young lawyers, they're doing well, they make a good living, and they can't afford to live in B.C. That's a huge problem, and you're not going to address that unless you have more supply of housing to reduce the prices. That's not a magic bullet in and of itself. You can't just have more houses and then the problem goes away. So what else do you do? Well, we're also going to make sure that people have more uh, disposable money in their pockets. And raising taxes in the face of fixed housing prices means people can't afford to buy a house, period. It's okay in some parts of the province. I think we all know places like Revelstoke and Whistler and Vancouver have huge problems. There are similar problems, not quite so bad, in places like Kelowna and Victoria, more moderate problems in places like uh, uh, Kamloops, and lesser problems in the north. But still, this is a huge problem in British Columbia when young people are leaving because they can't afford to live here. 
Um, on the First Nations side, a pretty significant contribution there. Three billion over 25 years, as I understand it, a seven percent increase in gaming grant funding to cover that off. No change for municipalities. Uh, pitched as a, a true and meaningful way to reach reconciliation. Uh, do you approve what you see there or no? Well, conceptually, yes. But our folks have pointed out. Ellis Ross, former uh, chief counselor of the Heisler First Nation, he's our MLA from Skeena. He says, make sure that it actually makes it to street level. That it's not just absorbed in conferences and administration. And we'll have to actually watch where that um, goes to. Because remember, it's being taken away from community gaming grants, which went to all your soccer teams and your arts groups. They don't get the money now. It's going to First Nations. And we want to make sure it's in the hands of First Nations at the street level, where kids can get benefits from it, where young people see the benefits, not just absorbed in administration. Okay, so how do you ensure it gets to street level? Because uh, if you hand it to First Nations Tribe X, um, you know they have autonomy to decide where the money goes, right? So after that, it's kind of out of your hands. Precisely, and this is, I think, the question in terms of reconciliation: who needs to receive the funding and how? That's a kind of bigger question. But simply saying you're going to take a chunk of money from community gaming grants and hand it over to the local First Nation instead, make sure you're getting results for that. Okay, Clean BC, uh, big commitment. You're smiling already. <laughs> uh, there's a lot to kind of chew into on that. But as you examine this program, okay, we need to fight climate change. Things are going on out there. Do you like what you see? Is there something you like? Do you not like that? what's going on? You know, 14 years ago, we put a high efficiency furnace into our house because there was a government grant program. Net cost to us was $9,000. Not a lot of British Columbians have $9,000 to toss around on top of their Clean BC grants because they're supposed to get, I think it's 1000 bucks toward uh, changing their furnace from gas to electric. That ain't going to do it, folks. So you have to take the big picture. The NDP are collecting $6 billion in carbon tax the next three years. That's 1200 bucks for every living human being in this province. That's about $2,000 per motor vehicle in this province of carbon tax they're collecting. And they're putting 15, 1,5% of that into clean BC. And with that, you can maybe buy a Tesla or save up a whole pile of money to change your gas furnace to an electric heat pump. I'm skeptical. Does it make sense to push to change to an electrical? I mean, I get the heat pump thing. I'm not against them. But, I mean, my wife and I put in a high-efficiency natural gas furnace two years ago. Precisely. I can tell you right now, we have zero motivation to ditch that suddenly and go to a, to a heat pump. Yeah, I'd estimate there are about 2 million natural gas furnaces in British Columbia. And saying you're going to give people $1,000 to change over is going to take a, a month of Sundays before you change over those millions of gas furnaces because as you say it's a fraction of the total cost and if you're like you or me and you just did it you're not going to be in the lineup to change over to electric yeah how do you move people out of gas vehicles well we're we're seeing a slow move toward hybrids of course my next car is going to be a hybrid because i don't like spending a lot of money on the gas pump the way i do right now yeah and we're getting more movement toward electrics but let's be practical about electrics they might work and if you live in victoria and don't leave vancouver island they're not going to work if you drive regularly from fort st john to prince george so let's not pretend it's the answer for everything It'll go there, but when you're getting subsidies of $6,000 per vehicle, you got to wonder how many people are actually going to take advantage of that and how many people can take advantage of that. Uh, on the cannabis side, there was no separate line item for cannabis revenues. I'm told it was around $5 million, uh, but a lot of front-end costs as well. So that is going to play out in the next three to five years probably. But what would you do there as far as using that revenue, and how would you share it with local governments? Well, this is an important question because we've seen the big budget documents yesterday, a couple of hundred pages, not a single line item for speculation tax or cannabis. They don't want you to know because it's not going so well. And so they will be saying, oh, no, no, it's hunky-dory, don't worry about it. 
you and I want to know, have they actually produced any revenue from cannabis? They're doing some online sales. I think there are two or three stores in all of BC. Clearly, the black market is alive and well because the supply is still being handed out to people. So is this thing going to turn into a big flop? we got to know because we're the taxpayers. And if we're going to be the ones regulating this whole business, supposedly, we got to make sure there's some actual revenue from this. How would you share it with local governments? There's negotiations underway now. We know what the split is federally to provinces and territories, but how would you tackle that aspect? Well, we've got to make sure local governments aren't having to eat a whole bunch of costs for all the licensing and so forth. Enforcement is going to be an issue, whether that's done provincially or by local police or local municipal government. So everybody's going to be saying they're running up costs, not getting revenue. There's going to have to be a, an appropriate balance there. Would a municipality that has marijuana stores, like at Kamloops, for example, we've licensed 13 to date, uh, one only operational, but some more are coming, well, versus, say, a Richmond or an Abbotsford who've chosen to close the door on stores, should they get the same amount of marijuana taxation revenue at the local government level? Well, I think no matter which municipality I happen to be working for, if I'm a, a municipal employer or, or elected official, I'd be saying, look, here, here's my cost profile. Here's what I'm running up in expenses because of marijuana legalization. I don't want to be carrying that myself. I should be getting some revenue from the sales. If I'm in Richmond, where I've banned them, I might be saying, well, I'm quite happy to stay completely clear of it. Sure, I'll take the money if you give it to me, but I'm not entitled to it. Okay. On the money laundering side, first off, obviously a problem. In the budget, GPEB's up by 200 grand, but other than that, there's not much in the way of prevention money out there. Let's tackle that first. No, and I think the the obvious thing is this government said last year they would drive money laundering out of our casinos and they built in a $30 million reduction in revenue from casinos. Well, lo and behold, they've changed that this year. They actually said that last year went up by $100 million and they're going to keep it up there. So either their money laundering program didn't work and it's still going on, or it wasn't such a big deal after all, but they have completely reversed their position. It's in their financial statements. They're getting more and more money from gaming, not less, because this money laundering thing has turned out to be a farce under David Eby. You know that prosecution fell apart in December on that Silver Line uh, illegal operation in Richmond, apparently, and the prosecution fell apart. That prosecution started under the BC Liberals, and it fell apart under David Eby. Are you blaming him for that? Well, there's a lot of explaining to do, and he's running around trying to say that the feds needed to take better care of it. If he's the the keener on money laundering, get out there and charge some people and prosecute them, David Eby. Don't just run around blaming it on somebody else. Are you concerned with what you're seeing in that file? I know the one of the latest Sam Cooper pieces is back in 2015, there was a lot of suspicion that... Uh, government officials were leaking sensitive information that underground casino you mentioned uh, seemed to have the uh, the enforcement date known well beforehand. That's bringing some a big bells. problem. So I think there's got to be a wholesale look at this because what we're seeing now is different agencies are blaming each other. The police are getting very annoyed with leaks from David Eby's office. It endangers their investigations that are underway. It can uh, compromise their prosecutions. So the whole thing's turning into this crazy game of who can leak the most information. David Eby, get control of the file, stop grandstanding, and prosecute somebody. What would you do? I would get out there and enforce the law and prosecute. I was a lawyer for 25 years. You get him into court, and you get him under the lights, and you hopefully convict them and send them to jail. You don't run around blaming somebody else all the time. You solve the problem. 
he made some news recently for saying that uh, there's some MLAs who are, who are not going to run, and there seems to be some media content out there that suggests there needs to be some renewal. Uh, and I note uh, people like Mike DeYoung are kind of softly pushing back on some of that. <laughs> so first question, from your, you're the leader. Does some of the old guard need to need to go away, or, or has that been overblown? We have 42 elected MLAs into the BC Liberals, and three of them have told me they're probably going to be retiring. It's up to them to decide when they're going to say what their uh, date is to announce that. And there'll be conversations with some other people to determine what their future is. And that will be coming out over time. I respect people's service. I'm not going to be tossing anybody under the bus. Yeah, you're not pushing anybody out here. No, I mean, it's easy to come up with these media stories about, you know, some kind of coup going on and people being dumped out the door. It's fiction. <laughs> well, they're not coming for me, pal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and last question on that. I mean, aside from this whole thing about pushing MLAs out, but on a renewal level, does the party need some fresh blood, need some new ideas, oh, need to kind of open the doors some fresh air or what? You know, before we put out a notice asking for candidates, we had 87 well-qualified people coming forward all over B.C., uh, saying that they're interested in becoming an MLA. We then put out a broader notice, and we got another 95 people who came along within a week and said, here's my resume, I'm interested, what can I do, how do I get involved? We're opening the doors wide open to make sure we're fully representative all across British Columbia. Does that mean open nominations in every riding or no? We'll wait and see. You know, we'll see how the dynamics go. As you probably realize, that there's sometimes ridings get themselves in a pickle, and it's time for an appointment. Other times, it's best to have an open nomination. It depends on the particular situation. And I've got to tell you, if there's an election called next month, we won't have a whole lot of time for a whole lot of open nominations. That was PC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. We'll take a quick break in Inside Politics and finish up with another Andrew, Andrew Weaver. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. We're going to finish off Inside Politics with a listen back to my sit-down also at the legislature with BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. I asked you coming in, but just yeah. out of curiosity, I mean, you're saying there's a lot of BC Green influence here. Yeah. Um, how did that work? How did you guys provide input and help kind of shape what we saw today? So we uh, obviously provided priorities from our perspective as to what some of the issues we felt were um, uh, should be supported. And obviously, we spent a lot of time in the last year working on the Clean BC file. So that was one of our top priorities that we wanted to see clean. BC funded, and we're very pleased to see that it was. Uh, another, you know, priority issue that we put forward to government was with respect to students. We felt that um, affordability was a, was a real challenge for, for younger British Columbians, and, uh, you know, eliminating the interest on student loans was something we were pushing for, as well as the creation of more uh, post-secondary spaces in the new economy, and both of those were delivered in the budget speech today. Uh, the one thing we would have liked to have seen a little more on, but we recognize that money doesn't grow on trees, is that um, there was not as much as we would have liked to have seen in terms of natural habitat restoration. Mm. For, in, in issues, you know, some of our um, uh, species like the caribou populations or some of our salmon streams, they, they're, they're suffering from historical human uh, inter interactions with the uh, natural environment. And, and we need to spend a little bit of time fixing some of what we've done up in a few locations. But, but we'll continue to work pushing that. Yeah, I'll circle back to that. Um, 
clean BC, obviously, this is Very the one exciting. that yeah. you're that you're really banking on. So, um, we nine hundred and two million. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we, we understand the goal. So, in your perspective, what's what's the most important bit of this plan to kind of get it to where it's going? Like, where's where's the where's the meat on the bone? So the, the two most important. Um, what, what we have to ask is, what's the goal? The goal of Clean BC is to take advantage of the opportunity afforded by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. British Columbia has the potential to lead there. For, green, for Clean BC to be successful, it's essentially saying that we want to be leaders in the new economy to take advantage of, you know, the bringing together of tech, for example, with our resource sector, you know, like you do in Kamloops when you have a you know vibrant tech sector and a vibrant resource sector there too, and, and they're beginning to to interplay and work together. Um, so 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 in that regard, we're quite we're quite um, pleased uh, with Clean BC, and and I and I think it will you know governments recognize this is that our three strategic strengths in this province would allow us to compete compared to other jurisdictions is we are one of the most beautiful places in the world to live we can attract and retain people because of that but if you want to keep that as a strategic strength you got to protect it hence environmental protection government gets this the second strategic strength we have is our education system is second to none in beat canada one of the best in the world and, but again, if you want to maintain that strategic strength, you got to protect it. Government saw that too, invested heavily there, both in terms of new teachers, but as well as the services that kids need in their early development years. The third thing you need is access to clean, um, is to the renewable energy, to the fiber and the water, and the government has recognized an opportunity there through Clean BC to, to build on our strategic strength of the beauty, attracting and retaining highlight mobile people, as well as the education system providing a skilled workforce. Next stage is to actually get industry to see this, move and relocate here and manufacture and, and, and take advantage of the, the signal that, that um, the market's been sent, that we want to lead Canada, North America in clean industry. In pitching Clean BC in the budget today, the province said that uh, CO2 emissions are going down and they're on track to meet their greenhouse gas emission targets by 2040. My understanding is CO2 emissions are going up, and then you throw the curveball in there around LNG Canada. So square that circle for me. So the Clean BC, the, the plan is to have a 40% reduction by 2030 relative to 2007 levels. Um, so in the last couple of years, emissions have an, indeed gone up. They've gone up from uh, historic low levels around 2009, 2010-ish issue. Um, with that said, we know that 50% of household emissions, or, or closer to 40%, 25% of all our emissions come from transportation. We know that that is a very big piece of the pie that we can get at really quick because the turnover time for a car is 10 years or so. So it's good to see a massive investment in terms of um, uh, etro, I mean, electric, electrification of our yeah. transportation sector. There's also measures here for electrification of heavy industry, you know, the trucks in the mines, uh, the upstream oil and gas and elsewhere. So I, I, it's, we're still only going to get 75% of the way there. Still, in the next 18 months, government has committed to work with us uh, to find that extra 25%. It'd be a lot easier if LNG Canada didn't happen. Uh, and frankly, to be blunt, I'll believe it when I see it, because the world is, is actually a, a glut in gas. And I will believe it when I see it, LNG Canada actually getting built in Kinemat because, you know, we just had the latest one, Steelhead's just like upped and left now too. So, so we'll see it, what, what happens. How do you achieve clean BC targets? And you and I have talked a little about this before. Like a lot easier to do in your Victorias and your Vancouver's yeah. urban centres. You've got your transit. A lot of people are giving up the car because of affordability. 
affordability, but that's not necessarily the case in your Kamloops and your Prince George and your 100-mile mm-hmm. house and your Merritt. So how do you sell clean BC in that part of the world? Well, first off, those communities are much smaller and they're not as much of the problem. Like if you're commuting every day from Abbotsford to downtown Vancouver in an SUV, there's a lot of emissions there. If you're commuting in Kamloops, it's not really as much far. I know people drive with their trucks. But there's a couple of other things that you could do. Like one of the things we'll be pushing for is pay-as-you-go insurance. Now, I know that, you know, let's suppose you, I live on a, on a farm somewhere. I might have a pickup truck that I'm driving around. And if you have pay-as-you-go insurance and you're just driving it around, uh, why, would, why should you pay the same insurance costs as somebody who's driving hundreds of kilometers every day in a, in, in a car? So by having pay-as-you-go, it actually incentivizes people. You know, it, 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 it actually helps rural communities who have that second car, et cetera. But also, you know, it, we know from the data that rural communities, the houses typically are smaller. The heating costs are down because the houses are smaller. There's also a fund in here to help um, with uh, some of the urban uh, um, additional costs because it's a little colder in Prince George, but that's also a strength. You know, okay, it's a little colder, but if you make your home energy efficient or passive house, you're still, you know, ahead of the game. So so I, I think, uh, I mean, we know, you know there's four and a half million people in BC. We know a chunk of them live in Metro Vancouver and on Vancouver Island. Uh, we can electrify our transportation set, set systems easily. You can in Kamloops, too. Uh, frankly, Kamloops is a pretty large center. The Okanagan, again, you can electrify there. You know, I get Fort Nelson, maybe not. Prince George, you can electrify there. I mean, how many people drive 500, more than 500 kilometers every day? I don't know a lot. There are some, but the EVs get a range of 500 kilometers, so I just yeah. don't see it as a barrier. Uh, last question on Clean BC. So one of the other points was to, uh, I mean, I get the moving away from old-style yeah. furnaces and homes and yeah. retrofit. Like, that makes sense. Um, but moving away from natural gas furnaces, even efficient ones, it's yeah. like heat pumps. Do you think that's something that people will bite on? I mean, well, if you bought a natural gas furnace and it's moving at like a 98% efficiency, where's the motivation for you to get rid of it? So there's the problem with um, what we've got going on right now. This is this is the, the hard work that we still have to do as a BC Green Caucus. Right now, if you look at the situation, we see electricity prices going up, and at the same time, we see natural gas prices plummeting because everybody's got natural gas. So it's, you know, sure, we're keeping the natural price up, gas up with a small carbon price essentially saying you can't use the atmosphere as a trash can. However, you know, there's resistance. There will be some resistance to move to electric. This is why we think that what should not have happened is BC Hydro needs to be able to keep keep on the standing offer program open to allow industry to bring power on at cheaper prices than we're going to get with Site C. We know we can get wind built here at eight cents kilowatt hour and below. We know we can get biomass. We can get uh, um, small-scale hydro, we can get solar all in, in that area. And, and if you're bringing it in at $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour, you can sell it at 10 and you can actually, uh, I mean, the price differential isn't so so, so much. So there's, government's going to have to wrap its head around the electrical policy moving forward. And nobody's saying you got a brand new uh, gas furnace, you have to tear it up and put in electric. What people are saying is, look, your gas furnace breaks, let's think about having the heat pump. Mm-hmm. If you have, like a lot of people have baseboards, I have baseboards, but a lot of people have the ductwork in their old house already. If you got the ductwork, you're set up for a heat pump. Yeah. And, and frankly, once you're there, you're going to love it because you get the cooling in the summer and the warming in the winter with the heat pump. Yeah. And so... So I, again, once people see them, they, 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 they like the technology. Uh, circling back to salmon, because it's an issue that's really of yeah. uh, pertinence in the Thompson. Oh, it is. We have the steelhead, which the return like, is 
dismal. Like, like, like three liters. Yeah, literally teetering on the yeah. brink of extinction, yeah. like no exaggeration. Yeah. So what do we do? I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of keeping uh, in check the riverbanks. Well, this is one of the things that we, you know, if, if there were to be something we would have liked to see more of, it was the uh, restoration of natural habitat in the, we didn't see it, what we wanted to see in that budget. Uh, that was probably our fourth priority or one of our priorities is that we would have liked to see more work gone in into reparation of some of these streams and, and, and estuaries where uh, we have salmon and other species or caribou habitat. Uh, we wanted to see more in habitat restoration. We've got work to do. Okay. Do you think you can save them? Or even the other salmon stocks. I mean, well, where's that? to me some of these situations? I think the steelhead, the, the the you know the South Selkirk caribou. I think they're toast. The steelhead Thompson. I don't know how they're going to survive. I honestly don't. You got like there's literally about three, so so four, and you know you still got a guy apparently who's who's fishing them out. So yeah, so I, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, last question, uh, just, well, not last question, but uh, it's a couple other topics. So, number one, you mentioned to me a while ago that you're looking to renegotiate CASA. Yeah. Uh, anything on that front yet? We haven't. We're, we're just getting through the budget. When we say renegotiate CASA, it's mainly a, the, the shared goals are still there. We, we need to take a look at some of the things that we, we've done so much of it. We need to take a look at where, where we're going to yeah. go moving forward. Okay. So, we're, that's, that's prob we'll probably pick it up tomorrow when I meet with the Premier tomorrow. Okay. Uh, and the other one is, I noticed that the money laundering file, which is something the entire province is yeah. sensed about, and to a degree, rightly so. Um, GPEB, which is the gaming regulator, got a mere $200,000 increase in the budget. And there was, I couldn't find anything else financially that seems to address the problem. So if the gaming regulator is getting inched up in a situation where we're looking at potentially hundreds of million dollars being in dirty money being laundered in the province. Billions. Like billions. Over uh, a billion so a year. What do we do? So these are questions that we're going to ask. We as opposition MLAs don't have all the deep insight as to you know what government is or is not doing. We are expecting a second German report. Um, we I, I suspect there'll be actionable items in that report that government's gonna have to deal with. So we're we're monitoring this uh, more than monitoring. We're actively questioning government in question period on this. We're actively you know exploring some of the the issues that are coming out in the in the media. Uh, like we saw the W five uh, last week was just shocking. Uh, the whistleblower came forth there. But so again, it, the work is we're going to keep pressuring government on this file because there's still too many questions that haven't been answered. Yeah, public inquiry, is that something you, you would push for or no? We're still, we're not there yet because, you know, a public inquiries are really expensive and and not saying no, um, what we're trying to do is get a sense of what government's been doing, what it's going, and if it doesn't look like it's satisfactory to us, then maybe we'll move down that direction coming forward. But right now, you know, I still have a number of questions about what government's doing on a variety of things, and we'll start to explore those in question period in the coming coming days. Okay, last question uh, on the ride-sharing front. Oh. Not much in the budget on that. Oh. <laughs> but I just, just out of curiosity, I mean, the government's delayed this twice. Technically, we're supposed to see ride-sharing this fall. Yes. If you're a betting man, do we see ride-sharing this fall or not? Well, I have a lottery ticket in my pocket, and I've won a dollar on Lotto Max every week for the last about 10 weeks, which is really irritating because then you go and cash a dollar and you buy another ticket, so you actually lose five every week. So, so, um, so I am, in some sense, a gambling person. With that said, is yes, I, 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 I don't believe government could survive not 
the, the, the reaction, I mean, I think they've misjudged how how upset people in Metro Vancouver are. I mean, I don't think it's the, like the be-all and end-all in Kamloops, right? You've got... It's still a, an issue. It's still an issue. It's still an issue. It's an, and the same in Victoria. It's an issue. But it's not like in Vancouver. It is crazy. You know, I've been to Kamloops tons of times. And, you know, when I go there, I can get a cab. Uh, you know, sometimes I have to wait. And it's not as convenient, but I get one. In Vancouver, you wait hours at the airport. You don't yeah. get one or they, take, they don't take you somewhere. So, so they'll have to. The problem is, is that... When they brought in their enabling legislation last fall, if it were not for my colleague Adam Olson, they, that legislation would have ensured that nobody came because mm-hmm. it essentially blocked ride hailing. So the amendments that Adam brought forward were critical to allow Lyft and Uber and others to participate. So he's working diligently now on this file. Um, we're convinced that we will get it here. I mean, the, there's the premier's committed. I mean, everyone's committed. I don't see how they cannot. Even Saskatoon now has ride hailing. That I understand just today. It's uh, they got ride hailing. So you know, Vancouver, two million people nearly in the in the yeah. greater area. No ride hailing. Great right. thing with Saskatoon is you can see your Uber coming for miles. I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you can only take it for a hundred meters because it's yeah. such a small town. You're not going to take it to Brandon or something like that. Or hey, can you take me to Regina? So, no, you're just going around town. So. Yeah. That was BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. We'll be back again next Friday. And hopefully we'll have the panel back and we'll have lots of discussion about all the events in politics. See you then. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.